So tonight is September 22nd, it's Wednesday night, and uh, our message tonight is called Favored by the Father. Before we get into the message of Favored by the Father, though, I wanted to tell you something about the song tonight. Did y'all feel God's presence as we started to sing about the Holy of Holies, uh, as we started to sing about the woman with the issue of blood? You could feel the presence rush into the room. The reality is God's Word says that His presence is here all the time. David even said, I couldn't go to the depths of hell or the heights of heaven without your presence being there. Uh, Jesus promised to be with us to the end of the age. But at some point, we had been prepared through worship to realize His presence was in the room. See, there was no difference on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was the same Jesus as the day before. What was different was the disciples could see Him in a way that they didn't see Him before. He had all the same glory before and after. Well, what worship really is is the opportunity for the veil to be removed and you begin to feel and see God for what He is all of the time because He's not changing like a shifting shadow. Hebrews makes that clear. But there's something about that song that really gets me when I think about it, and this is why. first person it mentions is the woman with the issue of blood. Now, those of you that have been here when we taught on the tzitzit, you know what that means. This woman reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment, right? Well, the hem of Jesus' garment was a prayer shawl. It had these tassels just like those. And the tassels were commanded by God to be put on every Jewish garment. All Jews had to wear one that from the four corners would have these tassels. And it symbolized a person's God-given authority in the commands God gave them. So when she reached out and touched his garment, she's placing herself under his authority. She's saying, I recognize who you are and I, I want to do that. That in itself is special. But you know what makes it more special? And I'm getting to a point here, I promise. She had this issue of blood. The same Jewish law that said that Jesus had to have those tassels on the corner of his garment said if she had an issue of blood, she couldn't leave the house. So they were in a crowd. You remember the crowd was so big that the disciples said, you know, how could we know who touched you? I mean, we almost crushed so many people pressing against us. Everybody she touched, she made unclean. And if they found out what she did, there would be a penalty for it because they were all ritualistically unclean. She was willing to risk her life, risk tainting others, risk everything to get to Jesus. That attitude, like the woman with the issue of blood, we press in, that attitude of, come hell or high water, buddy, I'm going to break through in worship and get to Jesus, he honors. The next one, like Hannah offering her prayer. Most people today would say Hannah, if, if Hannah, change her name, if Hannah's name was Sarah now and she was in the church and she couldn't have a baby, you know, people go say, see a fertility doctor, which there's nothing wrong with. People would say, oh, do this, do this. And then if it didn't work, they'd go, well, maybe you're just not supposed to have a baby. Maybe it's not God's will. But what ha- Yeah, we're sitting here with miracles, aren't we? But what happened in Hannah's life is God used this as a tool to get her to make a vow to God that produced the first prophet that the nation of Israel could rely on since Moses. See, these people that the song typifies, Daniel, uh, praying in the mouths of lions being shut, were about people that were admired for their faith. All of them endured adversity. All of them pressed in to get what they were after. This is something that's pleasing to God. Well, the song touches me for that. Even the, even the uh, blind man, 38 years blind. Well, what would people say about him? Oh, I guess God just doesn't want him well. You know? What if they'd given up in the 37th year? You know? and, and some people say, well, it's his sin. And the disciples ask this. No, it's his parents' sin. 
He was that way because God wanted the opportunity to show His glory, which is great for everybody but Him, who had to be that way for 30 years. The saints of God that are willing to press in, that are willing to do whatever it takes, are willing to do whatever it takes for the glory of God. You cannot pray, Lord, I'll do anything you want me to do if you're not willing to do anything he wants you to do. And we've learned to say all of that, but in in reality, often we're not. And so the people that that song typifies are people that had the right attitude and it puts me right in the right frame. of where It's hard to sing and I can't sing well. It's probably not hard for y'all to sing. It's hard for me to sing. But I love it because of that. Something else that struck me tonight during worship, people listening to this CD will have no idea what I'm talking about and that's okay. There are two songs in there that friends of ours wrote uh, that, that we sang tonight. Not people, well, some we were in church with and, and one was another relation, but out of those two, last I heard, one of them's not serving God anymore. Wrote a fantastic, powerful worship song that was a foundational experience in Matthew and I's life for sure. And God's not serving God anymore. It's a sober reminder to me in the midst of God's presence. This is serious. This is life or death. And if you don't have a press-in kind of attitude, I'll fight to stay in the kingdom, the reality is you're given the opportunity to return to Egypt. So that's enough with all that. We don't want to focus on that. It's just that this is serious and it needs to be taken seriously. That didn't mean it's not fun. Lord, it's, it's a blast. But it really is serious. I spent years believing there was no such thing as uh, a revival for Christians. No such thing as the prayer, Restore us, O Lord. I remember even putting in Carmen's tape where he sang that song, uh, Revive Us, and being offended by it. That's because I had not lived long enough in the kingdom to meet anybody that was seriously fired up for the Lord that faded on out and was no longer. And so it was inconceivable to me that that happened to people. Well, now I've been in the Lord a little longer, and I've seen it, and I'm sad to say the fallout rate's too high. It's too high. And I have to believe it's because we don't, we don't often realize the stakes that are at, at hand. So we're going to do that. But tonight we're going to talk about being favored by the Father. And it's a Wednesday night, so this will not be a long message. You ought to be able to stay awake through the whole thing, even if I do a pitiful job. And uh, we're going to be in the book of Genesis. And uh, we're going to start in the 37th chapter. I'm going to use Joseph as an example for some of this, and I'm not real sure. You know, I don't have this sermon planned out to the T, and that's probably good because I'd foul it up if, uh, if I did. Joseph's one of my favorite characters in the Bible, and it's no mistake why. Joseph endured unbelievable circumstances only to be exalted to the highest position in the entire world. You see a real shadow and type in Joseph's life that we're not going to go into tonight. Uh, I'm not going to teach on Joseph as it relates to end times, but as far as I'm concerned, Joseph is probably the best picture of the end times there is. Think about this. The brother sold out by his brothers because of the favor of the father being on him. He was put away. I don't know how long he was in that pit, but I could almost guarantee it's three days. Uh... Sold into slavery, just like Jesus, who had no sin, was made to be sin, slave to sin, uh, for us. He was sold out for his brother's benefit. He goes to Egypt, where at first things don't seem to go well for him, but because of God's favor on his life, Egypt, who is the ruling world power, is the preeminent force in the world, represents the entire kingdom of the world at this time. He rises to the second highest position 
in the land, second only to Pharaoh. Pharaoh in the Egyptian thought was God. The name they give Joseph, Zophanoth Panea, Savior. So God appoints one man to be Savior over the whole world. Why? Because there is a worldwide famine that lasts how long? Seven years. Is this beginning to ring a bell at all? Last seven years, and all the people of the world are forced to the one man that has been appointed as Savior of the world. Doesn't that sound just like the end times event to you? It does to me too. And uh, out of all the people in the world, who are the last to come? The Jews. And of the Jews, when they come, Benjamin, the last to be born, is honored the most, the latter remnant of the Jews. So you see all of that in that, that passage, and you can literally take it verse by verse, and every part of it is rich and full of meaning. But tonight, we're just going to look at some events in Joseph's life as it relates to us and some thoughts that you're going to learn, lessons from it. Favored by the Father. We are in Genesis 37. And, um, oh, I don't know where all we'll go, but we're going to start in 37. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Anybody know what the bad report was? Yeah, I don't either. It doesn't say. I just thought I would see if we could get a volunteer. We don't know what the bad report was, but I'm going to assume a couple of things based on the rest of Joseph's life, his character, the fact that his father's favor was upon him. I don't believe the report was false, or the Bible would say so. Uh, judging on the brothers' reactions later to him, I'm going to assume that they did something wrong, as they seemed prone to do when they were out of the father's presence, and he, with moral clarity, saw it for what it was and told the father about it. At 17 years old, this is a lesson for us parents, at 17 years old, what was Joseph doing? He was tending his father's sheep. Now, you don't entrust a flock to somebody on their first day. So this implies that for some time prior, he probably, been, probably had been being trained. Something worth mentioning is uh, a quote from Matthew Henry. And I don't read a lot of Matthew Henry, but every once in a while I find something that I like. He said, a child who is required to do nothing often turns out to be good for nothing. In the kingdom, if you don't take up task if you are not looking for the next thing that God would have you to do, you often, because you're doing nothing, turn out to be good for nothing. This is true as we raise our kids. You show me a kid with no responsibilities growing up, I'll show you a brat as an adult. Worse than that, an invalid. Because what happens when you don't do anything for yourself, you don't know how to do anything for yourself. The same principle is true in the kingdom. At some point, you have to graduate from sucking on a bottle all of the time to learning to feed yourself in the Word, from, de from depending upon godly leaders that have been put in your life as mentors to give you direction, to getting direction of your own. This is kind of a side note, but I want you to understand my view of what a pastor's role is. A pastor's role is not to dictate God's will to anyone. That, that's, that's for the Pope or somebody else that wears a funny hat. The role of a pastor is to teach you how to find out God's will for your life, to provide constructive feedback regarding what you have heard from God. See, something's wrong if I'm telling Stacy, Stacy, this is what God wants, and there's no witness for her. 
I wouldn't be a good pastor, though, if Darnell comes and says, I believe God's called me to China to sell soap, and I believe just the opposite and I don't voice it. Here's something that you need to know, though. It's ultimately her responsibility to decide that. All the Bible says is she should weigh carefully what I've said. So I say all of that to say we are children of responsibility in the kingdom. You want to be good for something? You need to work at the kingdom. This is a principle we need to instill in our children too. Don't spoil your kids. They will turn out to be bad adults and there will be some pastor's responsibility to deal with. Moving on from there, we see that he brought a bad report about the brothers. What do you think it required Joseph to do to bring a bad report about the brothers? Think about it. There's ten of them. Uh, I mean, there's actually eleven, but Benjamin's little. There's ten of them, and he goes back to daddy to bring a bad report. I've noticed just from my secular workplace, people have a hard time being honest to one another's face. I can talk to Matthew, and Matthew say, hey, I'm going to do this, and I said that, and this is how it's going to be. Then you squeeze Matthew into a room with the boss, and all of a sudden it's, well, whatever you would like. Yes, and, you know, all of this uh, capitulating occurs. What did this require for Joseph to do? Make a choice, and it's a choice that every Christian has to make. You have to decide whether you will work for the favor of the brothers or whether you will work for the favor of God. Once that choice is made in your life, then something can happen. And that's what happens next here. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Now, this is what you learned in Sunday school was a coat of many colors. And sometimes the more you dig into the Hebrew, the worse things get. I mean, particularly because none of us are Hebrew scholars. I learned that this was a coat of many colors, and when I read the commentaries, that's where they say it is. But the hundred scholars that worked on the NIV chose to say richly ornamented, right? So not necessarily a coat of many colors. This is one of those passages that if you're totally honest, we don't know what it is. He made him some kind of special coat. But when did he decide to do that? Is this just graft because he came and ratted out his brothers? Is that the kind of God that, uh, that would honor the patriarchs? Somebody, you know, is this just because Jacob said, well, this son uh, and I are tight because he'll rat out his brothers? Do you think that's why I loved him? Now, the Bible teaches us that a righteous son is favored by the father. And we're going to read a little bit about that. Because the boy made the, the conscious decision, I'm going to work for the favor of my father rather than the favor of my brothers, he had earned the father's love. It's the, and, and the father bestowed on him a special honor. This is no different than Christians today. We have to decide at some point in our lives whether we are going to work for the favor of men around us, saved or not, or whether we're going to work solely for the favor of God. Once that decision is made firmly in your mind, then God can bestow upon you the special blessing that He has for you. Now, when I say special blessing, don't think of something. Don't even think of one specific task. It is you have then qualified yourself to receive something from the Father that is unique and for you. This robe wouldn't have fit any of the other brothers. And truthfully, I bet they could have all gotten one if they had done what is right. You remember God is teaching us through Cain and Abel? When, when God's speaking to Cain, how does, he, how does he talk to him? He said, Cain, won't you be accepted? Why is your face so downcast? Won't you be accepted if you do what's right? He said, but 
Sin's crouching at your door. You need to decide what you're going to do with it. Otherwise, it'll master you. I have a feeling that Jacob would have honored all of his sons if they had honored him. But only one chose to honor him. And we're going to see these, these ten dishonor him again here in a little while. God's favor rests upon you when you're obedient to his task. That, that's the reality. I got saved with the scripture verse that said, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom. That's what everybody focuses on. I didn't even hear that. What I heard was, but only he who does the will of my Father. I said, Lord, Lord, my whole life. I could quote scripture that most people couldn't quote. I had a theological understanding most people didn't have. But sitting there hearing those words, I was pierced because I knew, despite all of my belief, I was not doing the will of the Father. So the first thing I hope you'll learn from this is if you want to be like Joseph, receive the favor of the Father, the richly ornamented robe, the first decision you have to make is that you're going to work for the favor of the Father and not worry about what the brothers think. Friends, that's, that's a whole lot easier said than it is done. And we tend to think about not caring what the world thinks and becoming Christians. That's one step along the way, and I understand that. The harder step is to not care what other Christians think. See, all of these people were part of the nation of Israel. They were all called. They were all predestined, or however you want to say that. It's what Romans says. They were all supposed to be the nation of God, but one was favored uh, above the others. Why? Because well, only one had the right focus. The other ten took some time to get it. See, in Christianity, we tend to say, well, God uh, told me to do this, then we go, I'll go take a vote and check with every one of you to see if it's okay with you. And if I don't with every one of you, then I find a mentor in my life and say, is it okay with you? That's, that's really not the right attitude. You should care what people think in the sense that if everybody you meet says, man, that seems like very poor judgment, you better have heard from God. But you are not dictated to by anybody but God. Otherwise, no new thing would ever be done for God. Because how many people... Have, I, when you read about the Azusa Street uh, revival, how many churches embraced it? None of the major churches in their day. When the thing in Pensacola first broke out, I was in churches that were godly that did not embrace it. It took repeated visits from people in our church coming back saying good things about it before we warmed up to it at all. I personally could have been quoted as saying, I don't know if that, this tremoring, was of God. Until people I met came back and gave me that report. See, the Christian church has not a real good track record of accepting the new move of God. In fact, we're skeptical about everything that happens. We say, where is the scriptural precedent for that? Well, if you'd lived in Jesus' day, when you saw a man spit in the mud and make an eyeball, you'd say, where is the scriptural precedent for that? You know, there's not always a scriptural precedent for something. And God's not confined to some rule book. But once you've made up your mind you're going to please him and not the brothers, you don't really care what people think. I mean, you, you move away from that. It concerns you when people you respect disagree with you, but it does not rule you. And that's important. If Joseph had been ruled by that thought, he never would have made it. And you'll see that in a minute. About this idea of uh, a favor resting on him. Joseph proved by his actions that he was working to please the Father. All Christians, every Christian like Joseph, must choose to be the favorite of the Father even at the expense of losing the favor of the brothers. Look at Luke 2. We'll see about Jesus. We're going to come back to Genesis 37. 
in uh, Luke 2, verse 52, you see a very peculiar statement. Only Luke writes it down, and um, it's one of the things that we usually use to point to the humanity of Jesus. And it says, As Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The boy Jesus, who had laid aside his deity for the purpose of being brought in the image of a man, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, submitted to this, even to death on a cross, the Bible tells us, grew in favor with God. You don't usually think of somebody as growing in favor. You usually think of somebody as either having favor or not having favor, right? But the reality is that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when you've been given a little and you prove faithful over it, you're given more, that more will be added to you. The same principle works with favor. In general, we all have favor as the fact that we are in the firstborn son. But the reality is, in the kingdom, we have not all proven faithful in our lives to be entrusted with more. Paul taught the church how to relate to him. And he said, guys, you yourselves are a letter. You're a letter uh, written on, on your hearts about our ministry. He said, so men ought to regard us as entrusted with the secret things of God. Paul could not have said that his first year in Christianity. Couldn't have said it. He had earned that as he grew in favor with God by enduring circumstances, by being faithful in season and out. Now, nobody has the right to judge anybody else and where they are with favor with God. All of you are favored by God. But you can grow in your favor by being obedient. I'm certain that Jacob loved Joseph from the time he was born. I mean... We read here in a minute that he loved him because he was the son of his old age. And here's another translation problem. And I, look, far be it from me to criticize translation. I'm not gifted enough to begin to question it. I'll just tell you that there is a considerable amount of debate over that statement. When we say, oh, well, Jacob loved him because he's the child born in his old age. There's a huge resounding problem with that. Can anybody think of what it might be? Was uh, Joseph the youngest child? No, who else was alive at this time? Benjamin. Benjamin. Yeah, Benjamin was the last child born to Joseph's mother. She said, call him Ben-Oni. Daddy says, no, call him Benjamin. You know, so was Joseph the child that was born in his old age? Yeah, but Benjamin was more so, right? A lot of people think this is a kind of Hebrew idiom, and this makes sense to me. I'm not telling you it's what it is. I don't like the idea that there's some kind of messianic uh, Jewish roots teaching here that is beyond us because we're inherently lower class because we're Gentiles. I mean, I teach Messianic roots, I teach Hebrew roots all of the time, but I don't like the idea that it's some kind of secret interpretation. It's not. You just see if it makes sense to you. What some of the uh, Hebrew experts say is that this is speaking not about the fact that Jacob was old when he was born, but that for a child his age, he had more wisdom than most kids his age. In other words, that the expression, and I realize it doesn't do it justice in English, is not speaking about the old man's age, but rather that this child had an uncharacteristic wit or uh, wisdom 
for his age. I don't know whether that's the case or not, but here's the bottom line. His action proved out the fact that he had earned his father's favor. When you look at 2 Corinthians 6, we'll look at this before we go back to Genesis. There is an Old Testament quote. 6.1 says, uh, as, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Here's what I want you to know. We were all saved on a day called today in the Bible, a day of salvation and a day of favor. You have entered into Joseph's status. All of us have. Now, this is not something that you have to work for. It's something that God has given you by grace. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and all of you are in the favored brother category. Now, like Jesus, you have the opportunity to grow in favor, and I'm encouraging you to do so. It's kind of like when the apostles wrote, and they said, not that you don't know this, but I'm writing it again to encourage you, and not that you don't possess it, but you need to possess it in increasing measure. You know, that you already have the favor. Now you need to grow in favor. Here's the next step. When we read about this richly ornamented robe back in Genesis, Genesis 37, you might want to keep your finger there because we're going to flip back and forth. Starting in verse 3 again. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now this is before we even get to the dreams. The father recognized the son's devotion to him and not to the men around him. He recognized the son's actions and decided to favor him. All of us are in that category. The day that you became a Christian, you were supposed to have said, uh, I'm willing to die to my desires, to everybody else's desires for me, and take up solely God's will for my life. That puts you in Joseph's category. puts you in the year of salvation, the year of favor. Then, once you became a Christian, the Father, just like this Father, bestowed upon you a richly ornamented robe. And that richly ornamented robe you'll see in uh, Galatians 3. I mean, you see this all over the place, but Galatians 3 is as good a place as any to read about it. In Galatians 3, verse 26, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You know what your richly ornamented robe is? It's the righteous actions of the saints. It is Your richly ornamented robe is the fact that you carry around Jesus with you. Now, that's important because what we're going to see is it's not just that the Father favored him. It's not just that he brought a, brought a bad report. These people hate him. These, his brothers begin to hate him because of this distinction, this robe that he has, and because of what it means in his life. Well, you're going to encounter difficulties from saved and unsaved people because the Father's favor is on you, 
because you've chosen His favor as opposed to men, men, and because you're clothed with Christ. Now, if you receive, Peter said, opposition, if somebody persecutes you or mistreats you because you're a robber, there's no glory in that. But if they persecute you or mistreat you because the glory of God rests on your shoulders, that's a whole different matter. We want to make it our aim to be pleasing to the Father in season and out, to be ready to be closed with Christ in any opposition we receive be because we're acting like Jesus. Not only are you clothed with Christ, does uh, Galatians say, but you will actually be clothed, uh, Corinthians 15 says, with immortality. Joseph got a coat that was either colored or by its very nature in some way designated that it was richly ornamented. You guys are going to be clothed in a body that never dies, 2 Corinthians 5 says. It says what you have now is a tent. It's provided by God, granted. Mom, Dad, God gave you a tent. But what you're waiting for is to be clothed with absolute immortality. That is setting you above your peers, is it not? I thought it was too. Let's move on to Joseph's visions. We've got about 15 minutes and uh, I think you'll find the visions insightful. In Genesis 37, we'll be back on the visions. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. So far, what you know about the brothers, would you have expected them to be receptive to this? So what on earth is Joseph telling them this for? Who, who told Joseph this? God. God gave him a vision in his sleep. You know... Many things written in the book of Daniel were dreams. He says, as I laid on my bed, visions passed before my mind. Now, here's something that's very important, and it goes back to the very original point. God gave him this dream. There is no indication that God encouraged him to go tell his brothers this. <laughs> now, we know that God worked through this to make a beautiful shadow and type of, of Jesus. We know that. God uses our failures for successes because he's an awesome God. Here's the thing, though. Sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot by running our mouth about what God's doing in our life. You know, I personally have experienced telling somebody, and then I prayed for them, and that one fell down, and this one got healed, and that one got filled with the Holy Ghost, only to be met with, you know, well, I've been saved this long, and you've only been saved that long, so, you know, like uh, jealousy or, or something. Where, where I expected encouragement and excitement, I found resentment and envy. Well, the Proverbs have a great deal to say about this. So let's turn to Proverbs 12. See if we can glean some wisdom from a book filled with it. In Proverbs 12, verse 18, we have a pretty insightful proverb. Reckless words pierce like a sword 
but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Was Joseph wrong to tell his brothers what God had done? No. But it, was it reckless? Well, sure, it got him thrown in a hole, you know. And he didn't stop here. We're going to read. He, he goes right on Dad and say, oh, it's not just you. Mom and Dad are going to be at my feet too. I mean, not in so many words, but he did. He did do it. Was he right? Yes. Not every true thing needs to be said, you know. It, it just doesn't. I could be ugly. I mean, that's probably a true statement, but it does not always behoove you to walk up and say, you know, Eric, you sure are ugly. <laughs> Is it true? Could be. Could God have even told you that? You know, Eric's pretty ugly. It's possible. But should you walk up and say it? Not unless you want to pierce me like it was a sword, and there could be consequences for that. Not, not that it's God's consequences, but I love the way my friend Willie Allen said this. Actually, it wasn't Willie Allen. It was somebody that reminded me of Willie Allen. Uh, those of you that used to listen to 88.5 in Baton Rouge know who I'm talking about, Brother Alfred. He said, you know, Pastor, Pastor, <laughs> I can't believe I did that. I've got to edit that. <laughs> I'm not doing any imitations today in the name of Jesus. He said, you know, Pastor, you can be right. It's kind of like the little Yugo that pulled out in front of the semi because his light was green and the semis was red. But you can be dead right. <laughs> and that's true. It's true. You can say something that's correct, but the consequence for it outweigh the benefit of having said it. And we need to be wise. Stay in Proverbs. Proverbs 16. I cannot believe I did that. While we're talking about using words wisely, I not purposefully, but maybe beneficially made a mistake with my words. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 21. The wise in heart are called discerning, and pleasant words promote instruction. You want to teach something? I've learned this the hard way. Those of you that know me well, especially in the preaching category, I can be pretty harsh. If I, if I want to, because God's gifting is there and I have a natural inclination towards it, we can pre preach something so convicting that you'll crawl out from under your chairs. I can't live it, but I can preach that. Pastors use that sometimes to create emotion to try to fill an altar because they see success in that. I've moved way away from that in the last ten years. But if you really want to promote instruction, what does Proverbs tell you to use? Pleasant words. If Joseph really wanted these brothers to understand that God had done something special... There would be a pleasant way to do it. Now, brothers, I'm not saying that you all need to fall down and worship me. Uh, I'm saying God gave me a dream and we need to wait and see what happens. But I'm kind of excited about what he may do in my life. And I'm sure he's going to do something fine in your life if you serve him with all your heart. That could have promoted instruction. Uh, Brother Sims in Baton Rouge told me one time, he said, Eric, it would be good if while you're a young man, you would learn to season your words with salt. Now, I tell you, that was hard, hard, hard for me to hear. It really was. And it was really good that I hear it. Because I see things very black and white. And if it's true, I thought it needed to be said. So I would be in a meeting with older men than me that are called of God, just like me. And I would stand up and tell them how the cow ate the cabbage. And maybe it was exactly right. But it didn't exactly promote instruction. And what the good brother was trying to teach me is, you know, if you season it with a little salt, it's a little more palatable. Mm -hmm. You know, you may need to take your vitamin, 
But if you don't coat it in sugar or something, it can be hard to swallow, right? We need to learn from that as Christians. I've said it like this many times. I learned this from Russ Gotra. He said, in shining the light of the Lord, you don't shine a mag light in people's faces. See, if you are Joseph and you're walking around with a richly ornamented robe, there's a natural inclination for people not to like you. You're different. You're walking around with the favor of God. You act different. You look different. Everything you do is different. Let's not give them more reason by the way we talk to them. You know? Uh, well, I'm blessed. I'm a Christian. You, on the other hand, you know, better get used to hot places. You know, we just want to be careful in the way that we say things. There's a way you can get through to people using pleasant words. Let's be totally honest. People standing outside of a bar yelling at the people inside, you are going to hell. Is it true? Probably so. How many people are running out, falling down, and getting saved by that, though? And truthfully, are you telling the people anything they don't know? No, their hearts condemn them already. What they need are some pleasant words from you. How about, friend, you don't have to drink away your sorrows. I know another way. You know, how about, young lady, you don't have to go get plastered so that you can humiliate yourself with some young man. There's a God who will love you just like you are. You know, there are pleasant words you can use that cause people to esteem you and the gospel and not want to throw you in a hole. Now, I realize that it was the adversity they overcame that makes us love Joseph. But remember, we don't want to go out and create our own adversity. Each day has enough of it for, for itself, you know. I, I don't need to go out and look for ways that I, I can cause God to have to uh, help me through adversity, <laughs> you know. And the truth, truthfully, we make a lot of it for ourselves. One more scripture on that subject, and it's in the 17th chapter and the 27th verse. I hope this is balanced enough for y'all. I mean, a man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. There's a lot to be... Now, I'm often frustrated by people that will not speak up. I mean, I, I... I tend to think of that as cowardice. And it can be. There are times when you, you refusing to acknowledge that something is sin amounts to tacit approval. This is where Paul, Paul speaking in the book of Romans says, and not only those that do these things, but also those that approve of them. In other words, those that don't speak against them. But the other side of that, the one more common to, to me, is we often give our opinion in situations where we have no authority, which makes no sense. Why are we always telling everybody what we think about their circumstances when God didn't give you that? This man with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. That's presuming that God spoke to you about the thing you're speaking about. I have every right if Jesus speaks to me and says, tell David that tomorrow at 2 o'clock such and such is going to happen. I, I would be in sin if I didn't. But I don't have the right to say, you know, David, at your job, I think this is what you ought to do. When God didn't say that, I need to learn to use restraint. Not everything you think is God. We often do this about situations and make the situations worse. This happens a lot. Have you ever gone to try to help in a dispute between two people and you made it worse? We need to use words with restraint. And this is not that hard. It's what mothers tell their children. You can't say something nice. Don't say anything at all. You know? This is also true in what God has spoken to you about what you're called to do. 
You're at a border crossing for China. You've got Bibles in your bag. It's illegal to bring them in, but God told you to bring them in. Not a good idea to run right up to that border crossing agent and say, hey, i got Bibles in the bag, and God said, I'm bringing them through. Why don't we use some restraint and see if he asks you what's in the bag? You know? Might even tell him there's books in the bag and see if he asks you what kind. This is what the lawyers say, loose lips sink ships. You go through a few de- depositions and you learn how to answer a question concisely. Now, I'm not talking about being deceptive. What I'm trying to tell you is many times we just need to learn to put a restraint on our tongue. Isn't that what James said? James said, look, man's tamed all kinds of things, but has not tamed the tongue well. More harm is done by things that were spoken out of the Spirit than almost can be repaired by things spoken in the Spirit. It's why it requires such massive moves of the Spirit to free people from the hurts from their past. Okay, I think we've covered that. So we're going to move on back to Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, by the way, the Proverbs tell me all kinds of things that are scary for me. It said, you know, where there are many words, sin abounds. What does that mean for somebody in sales? <laughs> you know, where there are many words, sin abounds. What does that mean for somebody who's called to be a mouthpiece? <laughs> it means I better be careful, huh? Okay, Genesis 37. Joseph had a dream, uh, verse 5. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. <laughs> You'll all be so excited. <laughs> We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. (laughs) He told it to his brothers. You know, I don't want to accuse Joseph of doing something wrong because we know that this is exactly what put him in the place to fulfill his calling in life. I just want to caution not to imitate every bit of his behavior. When you tell somebody the vision that God has given you and they react with scorn, resentment, uh, anger, next time you have a vision from God, you might consider Jesus' words about pearls before swine. Now, I believe somebody can be a dove at one moment and a swine at another. I think there are times I've played both roles. And, you know, that's, that's part of our dualistic nature. That's, that's part of the fact that we, we uh, carry around flesh, but uh, it's stamped for redemption. But when you recognize that somebody doesn't have a stomach for what you're trying to feed them, quit trying to feed it to them or they may throw up on you. You, <laughs> you follow me? That happens all of the time. And we think if they could just understand, it's not your job to get them to understand. Let God get them to understand. You back off and keep it to yourself. You need to not worry about proving things to people, especially as it relates to your life and your calling. If you start a small church, you can have a real chip on your shoulder right away. want to prove to everybody that you're called of God, that your ministry is from God. And what you may get is more resentment, and it, it perpetuates a cycle. And even when you're not such a small church, you're still one that can't work with any others. You're still one that uh, people are scared to come into and go out of. We have to be careful and not feel like we have something to prove to all of the brothers, especially if you meet resistance. If you meet resistance, back off. Let it be between you and God. Either He will do it 
or he won't do it. And in this case, it took 21 years to do this. He looked like a fool the entire time. But in the end, God did do it. How much sweeter would it have been as after the first vision, he just kind of backed off, the word would record that he heard it, you know, and then he waited for it to come about and it happened. It would be an even sweeter story of restraint. The reality is human nature shows very little restraint. Okay, so visions. I told you that you have the favor of the Father. We live in a day where Paul calls it the day of salvation, the day of the Lord's favor. You have a richly ornamented robe in that you're clothed with Christ. Well, what was the next thing Joseph had? He had fabulous visions. So in Ephesians 3, we're going to close here in just a minute. And I'm not saying that because I'm embarrassed or want to close quickly. I'm just trying to let you know where we are so that you can force yourself to concentrate. Some of the feedback that I've gotten on, on the CDs, people say, some, some in Louisiana especially say, brother, that was such a good message. I appreciate it. And would you quit apologizing about how long it's gone? Would you quit telling people it's ending? It, it, it starts to aggravate me. So I'm trying to work that out. That's right. I just stand up and say, truthfully, I don't know when we're going to end. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I ought to do. I am reminded, though, that the people listening to the CDs are doing, doing that on their own time, sometimes segmented, when it's convenient for them and all those things. And you are sitting in hard chairs in a hot room late at night. So they're, But we're on the first story, so nobody will fall out. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> Ephesians, I was in Galatians 3. Verse 4, in reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by His Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that. And then he goes on to describe the mystery. Y'all, while Joseph was hated because he had a richly ornamented robe, because he had the favor of the Father and he had visions, how much more than that do you have? 1 Peter 1.12 says even angels long to look into what's been revealed to you. See, we have vision that surpasses that of Daniel's because we have Daniel's. We have vision that surpasses that of uh, Joseph because we also have theirs plus what God has revealed since. Revelation has been progressive. It's ongoing. Joseph had vision. So do we. But we need to be careful how we communicate it and how we act about it. For instance, the message that you hear uh, proclaimed all over the TV set is that we're blessed and that the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. Is it true? Yeah. I'm not saying they, they're interpreting it always correctly in its application, but is that true? Well, sure it is. How much would it avail you to walk into a bank and yell that at the top of your lungs, though? You might get arrested. They may think you're trying to rob the place. I was working in the car business when people came out, threw oil on the car, and claimed it in the name of Jesus. Because whatsoever these things you shall ask in my name, believing you will receive them, right? Well, the response for that was not one of overwhelming joy. Number one, people had to wash the cars. Number two, they associated this with insanity. We want to live lives that show that we're close with Christ, not weirdness. We want to speak words that are pleasant for instruction that are with restraint, and we want the communication of our vision
to accurately portray what God wants to do in people's lives. If God has spoken to somebody in this room that you are to be a prophet, okay, I don't want to look upon that with skepticism because God may have spoken it. Prophets grow up from people just like us. You know, Judah may be. I have no idea. I'm not saying that about Judah. But given the ministry of the prophets, the fact that Isaiah walked around naked for three years or Elijah had to shave his head with a sword or whatever else happened to the prophets, you better hear from God before you go stand on a street corner and announce that you're a prophet. doesn't mean that God didn't tell you to do it. We just need to be smart about this. If you're speaking to somebody that doesn't understand the moving of the Spirit in the church, that's just something that's foreign to them. Why tell endless stories about prophecies in tongues? Why, why say things that are purposely going to alienate them? Instead, let's talk to them in general terms about how God's blessing you, let them taste and see that the Lord's good, and then they will taste of the power of the age to come. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I'm not telling you to deceive anybody. Please don't twist my words. This is not a milk-before-meat Mormon teaching. This is a wisdom in making sure that your words are seasoned with salt because evangelism is a part of our church vision. If it's not, we will forever be this size. We're going to close with these couple scriptures about the Lord's favor And I also want to finish reading Genesis 37. So go to Genesis 37. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said. You can hear the boyish enthusiasm, huh? I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon... And 11 stars were bowing down to me. You can see him saying that with such pride and contentment, you know. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This is not all that unlike an angel speaking to Mary saying, Hey, sweetie, you're highly favored. Tell her all these wonderful things about the son that's going to be born and then saying, but a sword's going to pierce your own heart too. And she treasured these things in her heart. Parents have a way of even when their child's vision, their child's aspirations seem out of reach, they seem untouchable, not accomplishable of having hope that their child could be the next president of the United States, could be the next prophet, could be the next. And that's a special thing. Having said that, when you're sharing something like this, but not with your mom or your dad, realize not everybody else has that aspiration or that hope for you. And they may simply see you as a braggart. They may want to throw you in a hole. You know, When we walk up and we say, hey, I'm blessed to Christians, we know what that means. That means that God's favor is upon you. It goes with the idea that it's an act of grace. It's not by works that you did. But when you walk up to somebody that has no idea anything about the kingdom, you know, their idea of a Sunday morning service is watching, you know, the stocks on a ticker tape or something, and you walk up and say, I'm blessed, that doesn't always portray the same thought. And we need to move on past that. A couple of scriptures about the Lord's favor because we were talking about favored by the Father. It's Psalm 147. This ought to encourage you at all times. No small thing to say that God delights in somebody. Psalm 147, 
verse 11. Actually, verse 10. That way we squeeze in Mandy's favorite scripture here. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor is his delight in the legs of a man. Yeah, now Mandy's red as a shirt. That was words I should have used restraint with. See, another object lesson for you. <laughs> Let's read it again for fun. His, his pleasure is not in the strength of a horse, nor is his delight in the legs of man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. You know something Joseph had in his credit? Same thing we have in his credit. He loved his parents enough. He loved his brothers enough to just be totally open about what was in his heart. Granted, it didn't always show wisdom. But he put his hope in his father's unfailing love. That's the only way you can look your daddy in the eye and say, sun, moon, star is going to bow down to me, baby, is to know that your father loved you and you're hoping in that he's not going to take it wrong. And even though the father told him to shut up in front of the other boys, he did treasure the matter in his heart. And I imagine he remembered it the day he saw uh, Joseph. I tell you this because the Lord delights in you. His favor is upon you if you trust in His unfailing love. And if you don't get anything else I said right today, all you really have to do is put your wholehearted trust in that and because He loves you, He'll discipline you and teach you. Proverbs 23:24 is the last scripture that we're going to read. Proverbs 23, verse 24 says, the father of a righteous man has great joy. He who has a wise son delights in him. Now, if that's true of a natural father, how much more is it true of our heavenly father? All of us are declared righteous. All of us have been given the richly ornamented robe by our father. All of us are pleasing to the father in the sense that we've been born again. That means that the Lord delights in us. Now we just need to carry that out. One last uh, word, just like we covered a natural example about a boy who's 17 years old working, being entrusted with things so that he becomes an adult who's trustworthy, and that was true spiritually and physically in uh, Joseph's life. Something else, your children, when they're righteous, it brings a delight to the parents. You know why? It's the parent's job to raise righteous children. So it's kind of like a pat on the back. Job well done. One thing that has become apparent to me, to Matthew, to Cassidy, to Jennifer, as we talk about the future of the church, there's nothing wrong here. We need to do everything that we possibly can, not just in words but in deeds, to invest in our children so that they will be the righteous children that make their parents happy later in life. Uh, so often we start that process too late. You know, long after behaviors have been established that ought not be established. And uh, this scripture has special meaning for me because I know the joy of looking into parents' eyes when they see you become righteous. I, you know, I was born again before my parents, or at least however that works, but I was uh, dramatically changed in my life before they experienced that same kind of conversion. And even before they understood it, there's a sense of joy and pride there. We want that as parents. And that's being a young church, that's pretty well what all of us are. <laughs> Does that make sense? Okay, well, stand up and let's pray.
We're going to work for the affection of our Father. We're going to proudly display our robe, but wisely speak about it with restraint. Does that make sense? And we're going to trust that whatever adversity comes our way, God will deliver us from, and that He'll perform everything in your life that He's promised you. All you have to do is refuse to care more about what men think than what He thinks, and you'll be blessed all the days of your life. You can't go wrong with that one statement. You're going to work for the favor of the Father even at the expense of losing the favor of your brothers. Make sense? Jesus, we lift up those sentiments before You. Lord, we ask that You would give us a steadfast and faithful heart. Lord, that we would wear the robe that You've given us proudly, Lord God, but also wisely. And Jesus, that in every situation we would seek to earn Your favor rather than the favor of men. We don't want to be Pharisees, Lord God. We want to be men that you approve of, men who look like your workmanship, who are created to do the good works that you prepared for us to do. We thank you on this Wednesday night for anointing the worship service, for showing up, for being here in the midst of instruction and helping us to walk this thing out. Lord, as we go about our day tomorrow, I pray you would show us who to speak to, uh, how to be your men and women on duty, and then how to deliver the message in a way that's pleasing to you so that our brothers don't despise us but would rather receive this word of life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.